0: You're listening to episode 193 of the Mad Chatters Podcast, June 13th, 2018.
1: Most everyone's mad here.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Mad Chatters Podcast, your very important date with the happenings at Walt Disney World and around the Disney Universe. My name's Derek, and I'm joined as always by my fellow chatters, Matthew. Hey there. And
2: Jeremy. Still better than SpongeBob the SquarePants musical. Hmm.
0: We're going to kick off this week's show with a round of The Disney Fix. Oh yeah.
2: The
0: Disney Fix. Ah. This is sort of our hodgepodge segment where we each bring to the table something we want to talk about, something that doesn't necessarily fall in any other category, but it's been our minds, it's been on our minds, and we want to bring it up with our fellow chatters. So I'll send it over to you, Matt. What have you got for us?
1: I watched the trailer for Wreck It Ralph 2. Ralph Breaks the Internet. And I don't know if I'm in favor of all the, the weird princess stuff going on. In the, and I'm sure it'll be like five minutes of the movie. It was very strange. It felt like something that uh, DreamWorks would do. Uh, like shrek you know. Princess is out of character. And, and Cinderella breaking her glass slipper and pointing it at Vanellope. And I know it's comical and funny and stuff, but it's... It's strange for Disney to do that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, she basically created a glass shiv.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And all the princesses are very, like... It's almost like... Disney always does a good job of maintaining, you know... uh, Status quo across the board with their characters. And so princesses are always princesses. You know, if you meet the face characters... Uh, if they're in a show, if their voice is on something, you know, obviously if they're in a movie or a TV show or something, they're they're princesses. They're not they're not people playing a role. And maybe I'm thinking too hard about it. But when I saw this, just a little bit of my a little bit of my innocence was taken away. <laughs> I was like, but the
0: princesses aren't like that. <laughs> I mean, I think they're still playing princesses, right? Because they say, have you ever been poisoned?
1: I mean, they are. Yeah. But it's like they're they're ripped out of their their movie context and their their characters are completely different. Like Snow White is not like a, a you know, a bumbling idiot. <laughs>
2: they're, they're almost in a way they are. They are parodies of themselves
1: in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that. And part of me is like, oh, that's kind of funny. But then again, I'm just the smallest part of me was disheveled.
2: <laughs> no, I know what you mean. I, I was a little taken back by it as well. Um, somebody on Twitter said something about, I don't like my Disney characters becoming this self-aware. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I can yeah. agree with that. Uh, it, it was was very meta. And all I could think about was when the Stitch advertisements came out back in, what was that, 02 And they sort of started crossing that line at that point where Stitch was... In Cinderella and then in, in yeah. uh, Aladdin and that kind of thing. And it, even that felt strange to me. Because like you said, Disney has always strived so hard to maintain that character integrity. Um, you know, Cinderella is not going to do anything that's un-Cinderella-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least not in a sanctioned uh, company role, status. Uh, so to see them in this kind of way, it, it was strange. Derek brought up another point about that trailer, though, that I think... Is worth mentioning.
0: Oh, yeah. I, but, well, the princesses is one scene they showed, but they also showed um, where they were walking into uh, it's hard to explain, but like a, a virtual world because it's the internet and it's like all these different websites and stuff. And like I saw Oh My Disney was one of them and a few other very, very current jokes. And I feel like that's one of those things where come November I'm going to laugh a lot and be like, oh, I get it, but five years from now am I going to say, like when I watch Seinfeld or Friends, am I going to be like, whoa, that is such a dated joke. So many of the Disney movies are timeless, and this one feels the opposite of that. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, it will just
2: set itself apart from the other Disney movies in that way. Absolutely, because even the first Wreck-It-Rap was timeless in the sense that yeah, it's video games, but it was like 1980s video games. It was nostalgia video games. It wasn't...
1: Yeah, what was nostalgia clearly... is different from outdated. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and, and I think what's happening with this is that there's going to be no nostalgia because we're not looking at the internet as it was in 2004. We're looking at it as it is current, and uh, as you said, things that are current now... I mean, think about even five years ago, if they made the movie five years ago, the, the way that websites have changed and the way we use the Internet has changed. Yeah, it's it's, it's going to be interesting to see that. The only thing I can think is that Wreck-It Ralph, the original film. Is timeless and that this is riding on its coattails, that we might be able to still love Ralph in 50 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I laughed at the princess scene. So that's a good thing, but I know what you mean. It is very bizarre. Even the animation is weird. Like to see Cinderella as a CG or whatever it is. I don't know the technology, but
1: and yeah, and not and not accurate. Like Moana and all those. I mean, obviously they were computer animated from the from the beginning. But I feel like even those two D characters that um, you know, Snow White and Cinderella are the only two I can remember seeing. And Mulan was over in the in the corner. Um, it's like they didn't even accurately animate them into CGI, like you would see on, I don't know, like Sophia the First or something. When some of these princesses show up, they're not—they're not the same characters. And maybe there's some kind of weird meta background thing in which these are not the real princesses, but they're the digitized characters of the princesses that are. I don't—I don't know how how to explain it.
0: My guess is that he's entered some sort of website where these princess... Like, there's some sort of Disney princess website that I don't know about.
2: Well, I think the, the website showed Oh My Disney as, like, one of the little houses. Right. But I wonder if there's, like,
0: some Disney website that I don't know about that focuses on the princesses, and this is what they look like in that version. So, in that sense, it's pretty accurate. I don't know, though. I'm just, you know, throwing out speculation. But... Anyway, yeah, Wreck-It Ralph two Ralph. Bre- oh, I love how there was a directly breaking the fourth wall joke at the end because when we talked about it on this show the day they announced the title, and it's called it's a very cumbersome title called Ra- Wreck-It Ralph two Ralph breaks the internet, and everybody said why wouldn't you just call it Ralph wrecks the internet, and there's that there's that scene at the very end of the clip where they directly speak to everyone who complained and they say, well, the phrase is breaks the internet, wrecks the internet. Yeah, it sounds better, but that's not what the phrase is. Totally.
2: (laughs) And I'm curious to know more about that character that they're interacting with, too. I I feel like that's going to be a a character people are going to like.
0: Yeah, I guess we're just a few months away now, so we'll see.
2: Well, speaking of films, I saw a movie and I'm sure I know Derek saw it. Matt, I don't know if you saw it or not, but Uh, just warning, if you haven't seen this film yet, we're going to be talking some spoilers here so you can fast forward a little bit, but I saw the movie solo, Matt, did you see it?
1: Uh, no, but I will. And I'm not really a spoiler free kind of person. So go ahead.
2: Okay.
0: All right. It's a pretty big one.
2: My, my initial thoughts on it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a pretty good film. It is very un-Star Wars. Which I can understand why people would not like it. In fact, at one point I had to remind myself it was a Star Wars film because there's just a lot of un-Star Wars elements in it. Uh, but I had some questions about it. But Derek, just get your overall opinion first. It was fine. It was okay. I I, 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 I guess it was
0: hard for me to enjoy certain scenes because, like, I felt like some of the action scenes were a little too packed like they were just action for the sake of action because the 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 stakes are very low in a prequel movie when you know this person survives this person survives this person survives i know what happens with the castle run like in that sense so many of the scenes i was like i don't care what happens because i know that what i care about is going to happen does that make sense
2: yeah i'm I'm gonna i know what you're saying but i'll disagree with you in that i was very curious about how that the love story was going to work out because we know they don't end up together and so i thought that was kind of an interesting twist and uh again spoiler alerts there is a character that shows up at the end or makes an appearance at the end uh darth maul who we all recognize from the phantom menace and that's the only one, right? He dies in The Phantom Menace, correct?
0: Correct. Except not correct.
2: He doesn't die.
0: Okay, so this was my thing. I have never seen any of the cartoons. So, Star Wars, Clone Wars, or The Rebels. I have not seen either of those. So, in my mind, I'm with you. Darth Maul dies in Phantom Menace. So, when he shows up on screen, I instantly think, okay, wait, Darth Maul died... When Anakin Skywalker was a young boy. So if he is still alive, that means Han Solo is old enough to be Luke Skywalker's grandpa. (laughs) And I was so confused. I was like, Han Solo is not that old. I know he calls him kid, but come on, he is not that much older. Turns out Darth Maul, yes, got chopped in half, but did not die.
1: Oh, that's uh, is that is that official Star Wars
0: yes canon that is canon because he comes back in Star Wars Clone Wars which aired on well I think Cartoon Network at first but eventually it was brought over to Disney and apparently from his story like he he's still alive but he goes crazy and eventually becomes apparently as we learn in Solo the head of this crime syndicate And so that's where you see him at the end of Solo and you're like, oh, he's the head of Crimson Dawn, the crime syndicate, because he's been alive this whole time.
2: Okay. And then, then, again, more spoilers, Kira, who is the love interest of Han Solo, who ultimately betrays him, she joins up with Darth Maul.
0: Yeah, it seems like she's been working for him the whole time.
2: And does she make an appearance in these... I guess Darth Maul doesn't make an appearance in Clone Wars either. It's just assumed...
0: No, he is a character in the cartoon for sure. Like, he's vo- he has a voice actor, everything. The same voice actor who voiced him in Solo. Um, but as far as I know, this is the first time we've ever met Kira because obviously they wanted it to be a surprise that she's working for Darth Maul. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to what you said, though, about her betraying Han. Did you see it as a betrayal?
2: Um... Yeah, because she was, she led him to believe that she was something that she was not. Yeah. That she was not something that she is. So, yeah, I would say that's a betrayal.
0: Okay. But I do like how, ultimately, she protected his life at the end. Like, she she still did her job for Darth Maul, but she let Han go. Like, she wanted to make sure he got away.
2: There was a lot of switches there at the end. A lot of oh i'm gonna do this oh nope i'm doing this oh i'm the bad guy nope i'm the good guy i'm the bad guy again <laughs> you're like wait what uh, but oh, oh, <laughs> i i can see how how people didn't like this film because like i said it, it doesn't have the the feel to me that even like a rogue one had where it still felt like star wars this this could easily you take the star wars elements out of it and you could have easily had the same kind of movie. An action movie in space.
0: <laughs> right. It's, to me, it was like a B action movie. Um, but can I tell you the, the biggest problem I had with it? Is like, you don't have to tell me every little thing about Han Solo. Like, you don't have to explain every single thing I know about him in like this what? movie. Like, where he got his last name. And um, they had to explain, like... How they met Chewbacca, and oh, he speaks that language. And then the whole Kessel Run thing, like, I mean, I guess it's kind of cool that we got to see it, but... I I don't know. It was just like, okay, everything you already know about Han, let me tell you exactly why he's like that. And I'm like, well, but I just kind of wanted to see, like, a completely separate story. And even the Darth Maul thing, like, someone said this to me, and I thought this was a good point. Like, if you're going to have Solo, quote, a Star Wars story... Like, it doesn't need to necessarily tie into the saga. Like, the fact that Han Solo is your main character, that means it's already tied into the saga because your main character is someone you know. The rest can be totally separate. But then when you bring in, like, Darth Maul and Lando and all this stuff, like, you're just trying to find ways to tie it all in, but it's it's not pretending to be part of the saga.
2: Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. On the other hand, people would have been upset had they not included these story elements about what made Han Solo Han Solo. The Chewy thing caught me off guard because I didn't expect it that early in the film. Like, it was, like, really one of the first things. It's like, oh, and now he's friends with Chewie. Okay. Um, I loved the Lando aspect of it. I thought Donald Glover was incredible in that role and really captured the essence of Lando in a way that Hansel and Gretel, or whatever his name is, um, did not capture i i never bought into him as han solo if you want to know the truth i I can see that i i he
0: did a lot better than i expected like i thought he actually did a great job but i mean who who can be a young harrison ford really
2: yeah all i kept thinking honestly is when i watch these at home like if i ever have a marathon and i'm gonna watch the solo movie before i watch you know it's gonna be a disconnect between him in the solo movie and and then, then into A New Hope or whatever. Yeah,
0: I can see that. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I saw it. Um, it, was, it was basically what I expected. I went in with kind of low expectations and it didn't necessarily excel or exceed them. Um,
2: but, yeah. Not a terrible movie. I, I don't think it deserves the hate that it's getting um, from people. But it, it is interesting to me, too, that Han Solo is such an iconic character and yet this is going to be the lowest rated and lowest uh, viewed and and liked film in the Star Wars universe aside from the prequels
0: I kind of went into it with the mindset was anybody asking for this? Like we've seen so much Han Solo that I kind of feel like I already know everything about the character so there was no part of me that thought oh I want to know how he became the way he is and so when I went into it I was hoping they would completely surprise me with where they went and then they didn't really at all
2: but let me also flip side say I am thankful because there were several times that I expected them to just play the easy card and they didn't. Like they they could have easily made Jabba up here, or they could have easily made lots of other references, Guido, all these kind of things that uh, I'm like, all right. so it wasn't just like, ah, here's a reference, ah, there's a reference. (laughs)
0: Well, that's funny that you say that, because I actually thought when they did bring up Jabba the Hutt at the end, I was like, okay, I mean, we already knew he was next in Han's life, did we really have to hear the Hutt name? Yeah. But the aliens look great, I loved all the new aliens, and the new droids, and all of that, like, in that sense, it felt like old school Star Wars. Yeah,
2: and Woody uh, Woody Harrelson, not Woody Allen, (laughs) that would have been interesting, Woody Harrelson. (laughs)
0: yeah the whole uh, who shot first thing I love that they basically just did a recreation of that at the end yeah very nice Greedo yeah when you said Guido I was like wait what's his
2: name Isn't?
0: oh Greedo, Greedo. Oh, okay. yeah.
2: I made him Italian my bad yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well you guys both took my Disney fix and my backup Disney fix uh, so I'll I'll put this out there for you later. I'm going to have the opportunity to talk with the directors of Mulan. super excited about that. Uh, but since, uh, since we're here, I want to get your take on the film, any special memories of Mulan or any overall thoughts about the film now that it's turning 20 years old.
1: Szechuan sauce. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. That was introduced at McDonald's. For as a promotion for mulan in 1998 and it was delicious then and then it went away and uh, just this year it was reintroduced to McDonald's. now my local mcdonald's is no longer carrying it so it might be phasing out i don't know but i love szechuan sauce brought back by rick and morty if i remember correctly yeah, you can have a poor man's like teriyaki boneless wing with ranch sauce if you get some chicken McNuggets, and dip it in that sauce, and then a little ranch if that's your kind of thing. Um, but I do, I do on the on the note of the film, I do remember seeing it, and it didn't really um, appeal to me that much when I saw it in theaters. And by this point, when I was a whatever 13 years old, I was already a little bit jaded by um, Hercules and. And Hunchback, which I didn't really fully appreciate in that moment, and it just felt very different from those early '90s Disney films that I liked. But over time and rewatching Mulan several times, the music has grown on me, as have um, the characters and a lot of the funny lines from from Mushu. Classic Eddie Murphy stuff. I do. I like this movie a lot.
0: Yeah. See, for me, it was the opposite when I saw it in theaters. Loved it. In fact, I think this was one of the first movies I saw twice in the theaters. Like, I thought it was hilarious and so moving and the music was good. And it's been years since I've seen it, so recently I re-watched it. It's on Netflix and I thought, well, obviously I need to kind of, you know, refresh my memory of the film. And part of me was kind of nervous that I was going to cringe a couple times or say, oh, that's not funny, Eddie Murphy genuinely enjoyed it from start to finish and I, w- I was really glad that that was the case i i still think it's i still think it has a lot of lot to add to the disney
2: canon as president of the donny osmond fan club i approve of <laughs> everything he does
0: you guys that scene is still so good like i think i
2: got goosebumps near the end just because it's so empowering mm. yeah the music's wonderful this is always been one of my top five favorite films that Disney has done. And a film that doesn't get the respect I think it deserves by the company, but by the fans definitely appreciate it.
0: Yeah, that's a great point.
2: And I think it's one of the first times that we've seen a quote unquote Disney princess who is outside the traditional roles that we think of. You know, all the ones that came before are kind of girly girls. They're... Waiting for a man to save them in a sense um, you know and even somebody like Jasmine who's a little more empowered and that kind of thing uh, is still a princess waiting for somebody to rescue her from her life uh, Mulan is really the first time that we see a, a female Disney character who kind of takes the reins and and is the master
1: of her own destiny if you would yeah before going back home and then getting rescued by a guy <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we have to have the Disney twist at the
1: end. I mean, <laughs> it's the fairy tale. It's the fairy tale formula for a reason. Wreck It Ralph, too.
0: I don't think she gets rescued by him. She invites him to stay for dinner. Mm. And Grandma has t- that
2: classic line: "Sign me up for the next war." <laughs>
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, you talk about her being a princess. I'm going to ask Barry and Tony about this, but I want to get your take. This is the first time I ever realized that Mulan's not a princess how do we feel about her just becoming a Disney princess?
2: I remember this when this happened uh, and they made her a Disney princess because they came out and said that being a Disney princess is more than just being royalty by birth or by marriage, but it is possessing the qualities that a (laughs) Disney princess has. And that's what makes her uh, a Disney princess because uh, you are right. Up until, up until Mulan, every Disney princess either, was won by birth or or married into the, into the the, the crown? Um, and and even after she gets married, I mean, Shin Shin Lee, Shin Shin Hu, Shin Shin something, uh, whatever his name is, he's not a prince. He's just a soldier.
0: Yeah. So. Well, I think we should make Anita a princess from Hundred and One Dalmatians. She possesses all the qualities.
1: I'm all for making people things that they're really not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that sums it up. Yeah. Uh also, can't believe I didn't know this until now, but the rewatch taught me that the voice of the short, I can't remember his name, Yao, whichever one is the short stocky one
2: of the of the, like the trio,
0: yeah, is Harvey Firestein.
2: Yes, it is. It's Harvey Firestein. Yeah, that's
0: a really good impression actually. And I'll do it with my shirt on. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, like, as I saw the credits, I was like, oh, duh, it is. But I just had never put that together before.
2: Well, you'll appreciate this. Do you remember on ER the Asian male nurse that was on there for many seasons? I mean, I remember Ming-Na Wen on there. No.
0: The voice of Mulan. (laughs)
2: That's not her. A male Asian nurse. Um... Again, a background character, but it, but it featured in several episodes for a couple of years. Anyways, he's one of the voices. He's like the skinny one.
0: Okay, Ling. Yeah. Yeah, because he says,
2: that guy's name is Ling.
0: I didn't ask what that guy's name is. Anyway, I, I just watched this very recently. so
2: <laughs> We can tell. <laughs> anyway, I'm excited to talk to them a little bit later. So, Well, let's get down to business.
1: Let's get down to business. This is Jeopardy.
2: All right, welcome back to Mad Chatter's Jeopardy. This is where we provide the questions, and then we provide the no, we provide the answers, and we also <laughs> provide the questions. Uh, it's, it's it's full service here. Uh, so, anyways, we're going to get started. The answer is: I have a bad feeling about this.
1: What is they are parking us in Cruella today?
0: What is the first thought that enters my mind when the cast member assigns one more adult to my row than will conceivably fit?
2: What is said by John Lasseter's interns every morning before clocking in? The answer is 3.14159265.
1: What is
0: the average number of seconds it takes a person riding mission space to realize he's made a terrible mistake?
2: What is the average number of times a day I think about the circle of life in Environmental Fable?
1: What is the amount of time and seconds you have before I lose my mind on you for using your external lighting during a fireworks show?
2: The answer is strong enough for a man, but made for a woman.
0: What are Nani's thighs in Lilo and Stitch?
2: Shut up, because my answer is what is Miss Incredible's thighs, honey?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that we all went for anatomy on this, because I said what is Lilo's nose?
0: I don't know if that was made for a human.
2: The answer is brown and sticky. I'm going first. What is Groot?
0: (laughs) I said, what are Olaf's arms?
1: Oh, so y'all went, like, real, like, sticks.
0: That's the classic joke. What's brown and sticky?
1: Yeah. What is syrup? (laughs) On a Mickey waffle. There's Uh, the Disney (laughs) (laughs) tie-in. Nailed it.
2: The answer is... Uh, what is the box office numbers for Solo? Oh. Mm.
0: What is the sound that played in my head during the entire 20 minutes of Spectaculab?
2: <laughs> I forgot
0: about that. <laughs> Frankie, just stop. Frankie, no.
1: <laughs> what is the sound heard in the Polynesian resort bathroom after I eat Elhana?
0: This month marks the 20th anniversary of the Disney animated film Mulan. It had its world premiere on June 5th, 1998 at the Hollywood Bowl, and it was released in U.S. theaters two weeks later on June 19th. To honor this special occasion, we've invited the movie's two directors to join us on the podcast and look back at the making of Mulan and the lasting legacy it has created Over the past 20 years. And maybe they'll even spill a few insider secrets about the film. We are so excited to have these two men on the show. So we're going to go ahead and get them on the line. Here are Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook. Well, thank you both for joining me today. I... I'm very excited to dive in to this film that you both created, but before we do that, why don't you each introduce yourself, and if you want, maybe give a few of your other credentials, just so our listeners know who is who when you're talking.
3: Uh, I'm Barry Cook, and one of the directors of Mulan, and also a co-director on Walking with Dinosaurs with BBC Earth, and Arthur Christmas with Ardman and Sony Pictures. This is Tony Bancroft, also
4: co-director on Mulan. I also co-directed a brand new movie that's coming out this year, hopefully at the end of this year, called Animal Crackers. Um, mm-hmm. So I've been with Disney. I was with Disney all the way to 2000. Worked on films such as Beauty and the Beast. I did Cogsworth the Clock. I did uh, Lion, on Lion King. I did Pumbaa the Warthog. On, um, on Emperor's New Groove, I did Kronk the big dumb guy, and uh, uh, what am I missing? Uh, oh, Aladdin. I did Yago the Parrot. Oh, so great. I started out in animation and then got into directing with Barry.
3: My <laughs> former life was a effects animator at Disney on Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and Worked on Michael Jackson's Captain EO video and other things like that. Wow. That's a great reference
0: for our listeners.
4: Yeah, you, you guys are park, park guys. You must know Captain EO.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you both had a background with Disney before directing this film. Was this your first, was this your directorial debut, I guess, of a feature film?
4: Yeah, for both of us. Although
0: Barry actually did a short, a couple shorts before two this.
4: Two shorts. Right?
3: Yeah, two short films. Uh, one was called Office Rockers, which was sort of an experimental. CG and uh, 2D animation put together. And a very early CG film finished in 91, I think. And uh, and the other was one of the Roger Rabbit shorts, Trail Mix-Up, the last of the three that were made after the feature.
1: Great.
0: Um, okay, so for any listeners who might not be aware, do you mind explaining what the director of an animated film does exactly? <laughs>
4: everybody, everybody always asks this question. I actually,
0: I actually wrote a book because I got... I got to ask
4: this question. I've so got it right here myself. Yeah, it's called uh, directing for animation. It's available on Amazon.com. Yep, still go, still go and get it. Um, but yeah, so many people ask this, and I mean the the corny answer. Look at, there it is. He's holding it up. Although it's a although, podcast, and you can't although see it.
3: Tony says I'm from Kentucky when I'm really from Tennessee. But other what that, did I actually, say that? I'm so sorry.
4: Just so you know, there is more typos in that book than wait, um, actual book. actual facts.
0: I mean. <laughs> What can we believe if you don't even know where he lives? Gosh. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I don't live there. I was
3: I was born in Tennessee. Nashville. Hey,
0: well, I'm recording from Nashville right now. Oh yeah, oh, yeah.
4: Look at that, couple country boys. Uh, but to answer your question, it's um, you know, the the corny quick answer is that it's everything that a live action director does, but in slow motion, <laughs> um, at 24 frames per second. But yeah, we're in charge of working with the script writers and the voice talents and casting all the way through, um, you know, um, the performance, developing the performance with the animators, cleanup, uh, background, color, production design, all the way through to post-production, sound effects, and final mix.
3: And I'll, I would add to that that we have to work with two actors for every speaking role. One is the sure. voice actor and one's the animator. So it's sort of double duty when it comes to getting a character on the screen. Uh, but the uh, the voice actors love it because they don't have to wear makeup or costume they just come in their pajamas or whatever
4: (laughs) yeah yeah first time we met eddie murphy actually he came in in the bathrobe
0: yeah (laughs) nice oh we'll get to eddie murphy for sure
4: oh we'll get
0: there (laughs) well it's making more sense now why most of the disney films have at least two directors uh it seems like a lot goes into it
3: Well, i think if it's if one gets hit by a bus i think that's really the reason (laughs) (laughs) just keep going you know it's like that's the main reason I think, and but it is, yeah. it's a lot of work. I mean, the crew, if you look at the credits on Mulan, there's probably 600 people in the crew. So, yeah. Tony and I divided up departments really. You know, uh, we worked animation together, we worked story together, we worked editorial together, but other departments we would divide up departments between us so that we could just sort of split the workload. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. it was official.
4: It is efficient, and I think it's it's kind of there are so many people involved over a long process that um, I think they just the executives feel like it would burn somebody one person out. Although there was uh, at least one animated feature that had only a single director, and that was Mark Dindle on The Emperor's New Groove. I can't think of any others, though. Almost every other um, feature has had two directors.
3: Yeah, yeah, also too, if you think of it, and. You know, there's sort of a triangle at the top of most corporations, most businesses. But the producer, Pam Coates and Tony and myself, we're sort of this triangle. So you can always break a tie. The producer can always break a tie. If the, if the directors don't agree, she might agree with one of us. Right. Or if, if the directors don't agree, the studio could break the tie. When Jeffrey Katzenberg was on the project very early on, uh, you know, he was always the tiebreaker in the films, you know, creatively. If the directors couldn't come to terms, who would say do this? So sometimes, yeah, you know, and then never got down to minutia, but bigger decisions and things like that. When you've got that that those three people, you've got the ability to move things forward without delay.
0: Were there a lot of ties that needed broken between the two of you? Oh, <laughs> Not too many. I mean,
4: I think we we that was the good thing is I think we from day one pretty much agreed on the movie we we're making and how we wanted to tell it. But, but even within that, there's always textural things or little details or elements. And, I, you know, the thing that I learned early on about directing um, was because I came from animation, I was always into the minutiae of a scene, of a moment. And to direct an animated film, film, you have to really kind of think of the overall story arc of something. And there's such a kind of a domino effect. We would be in story sessions where we're like, well, what if we did this? And what if we did this? And... And then my mind would start to go way ahead of like, okay, well, how does that affect this sequence and this sequence and this, and all the way to the end of where Mulan ends up. And it was, I would be exhausted by the end of the day. I don't know about you, Barry, but I would, there was sometimes I just had these mental headaches of just constantly thinking of repercussions of every little choice and decision and trying to get ahead of myself. Um, and that's where we balanced each other well, too, I think, because sometimes I would get in a funk of like really trying to think through all these things and playing devil devil's advocate sometimes whereas barry was uh, a lot more instinctual sometimes about like oh no let's just do this and you know we're gonna go for it and let's do it, it sounds good I was, all, I was all about
3: having fun at that time i think but i yeah it was really <laughs> sort of like just trusting you trusting your gut but when you're sort of in the trenches doing it daily daily and the crew's really working hard you really just sort of go through your day and you make your decisions for the day and you go home and have dinner, and come back the next morning. And, and <laughs> yeah, Barry makes it sound a lot easier than than what I remember. <laughs> but, but it was a fun time making the film. We had a really great time, and and for the most part, really good memories. And it all it seemed like just enjoyable work. You know, great work. You just wanted to jump out of bed every morning and get there and and do it. You know, it was it wasn't a drudgery at all. It was good fun.
4: But we we also had. An outstanding crew, and I I guess you'll you'll hear this. This will be kind of the theme that we say probably through the whole podcast, but really, Barry and I were just so blessed and fortunate to work with some of the best animators, artists, designers, storyboard artists, writers. I mean, you name it, all the way down the road, all the way down the line. They were just all so phenomenal. And sometimes a best, the best thing you can do as a director is kind of get out of the way and let people do their job that they do really well already. Um, and knowing when to engage and when not to engage and give everybody that freedom creatively is, is a big part of it.
3: When you have uh, head of story like Chris Sanders, yeah, uh, or and and second second uh, Dean Dubois and John Sanford and people like that and Tim Hodge, I mean. Amazing, really, from the start. Production designer like Hans Bakker, art director like Rick Sluder. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's like, wow, we get to work with these guys? It was fun. This
0: is
4: a dream team. It really yeah. was.
3: Well, that's really refreshing to hear. I like
0: that. Uh, now, on our show, we focus mostly on Walt Disney World. And one thing about Mulan that's fascinating to me is that it was one of only a few films animated and produced at Disney MGM Studios in Florida back when the park uh, well, now known as Hollywood Studios, had a working animation studio. Do you ever think about that, looking back, like how you were part of a fairly significant, albeit short-lasting time in that park's history?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, we were we were there from the, from the get-go. Barry and I were part of uh, the very first team that was hired to start at the Disney, when it was, the Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. And um, I came in after an internship, and I have a twin brother named Tom, Tom Bancroft and we both came in through an internship that started in Burbank, California, and then came in at right in 1989 when the when the studio was opening. Barry was already working at the studio in Burbank and got called over. There was a group that was, and you could talk about this, Barry. But how were you guys called over to work in Orlando?
3: Uh, it was it was totally voluntary. They sort of just looked for guys who might be interested in in making the move, and for me, it was. It was an opportunity. We, I had three. My wife and I had three small children at the time. Even on a Disney animator salary, I couldn't really afford. We couldn't afford to buy a house in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I'd been, I'd been animating at Disney for almost ten years, you know. And uh, and so we thought. So they were saying, "Oh, we're going to open the studio in, Flor- in Florida, and we're looking for uh, you know experienced animators to to go." And uh, so you know, we started you know talking to the studio management in, in those regards and you know had a uh you know sort of scouting trip down and talked to max howard who was going to be in charge of the studio and uh down here he was the studio manager on who framed roger rabbit in london and they had hired him to manage the studio so uh we made the decision as a family and and moved down here in 89 and uh was, we're there for the opening and
4: oh and, and you you cannot imagine derek the excitement of this new studio now this is well before mulan was even a twinkle in michael eisner's eye so this is this is well before any talks of of doing a feature actually we were promised at the time when we were starting in at the studio that we were just going to be doing shorts that was the whole idea it was going to be a shorts crew um just doing like roger rabbit shorts mickey shorts things like that um but that was exciting in itself because many of us wanted to Kind of learn, and in the old tradition of of Disney feature animation in Burbank, they used to have a shorts department, and that was how that was how people got trained. And then when they were good enough, they'd go on to features, or they would become directors because they directed a short. And so, um, and for Barry, that actually happened. I mean, you heard him talk about how he anim- he directed two shorts, and that was really his leaping off point into directing Mulan. Um, but when we first started there, we were just all young and excited most of half the crew were like straight out of college um and and then the rest were like barry and mark hen and barry temple and these guys that came from the burbank studio that were well regarded well respected already but really looking for kind of new opportunity and a new new horizon um so and it was it was publicized when, when it first opened um we had this like groundbreaking ceremony where Um, 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 we had, uh, five or six of the, the nine old men that were still alive, um, or actually four of the nine old men that were still alive. And then Jimmy McDonald, who's a a famous sound effects guy. And, um, but there was these like six, you know, old timers that were, that started with Walt and they were there for the groundbreaking. So it was like the, the young and the old together. And there was this big publicity thing for the very opening day and, it was just so exciting to be a part of i don't remember
3: that day. you don't remember that day sort of i sort of remember it yeah, yeah. i remember it, but not that much i don't the
4: know the nine man even put their hands and um in cement. Cement. Oh, yeah. yeah remember that so yeah, there was like a uh stuck a there hand hand for hours <laughs> yeah they it dried too quick on ward kimball and he couldn't
0: get away <laughs> uh now did it feel like any other studio or were you very aware of the fact that you were in a theme park
3: well, we were on display. We were under glass, yeah. and yeah. that was very different. And uh, and we thought at first, well, this is going to be weird, you know, to work in here. And the way it was set up, it wasn't that obtrusive. Uh, we know one animator who met his wife. She was a, a tour guide on one side of the glass, and he was an animator on the other side of the glass. Barry Temple. Yeah. And uh, uh, we met Teddy Newton, very famous uh, Pixar. Uh, character designer now and story guide director directed some short films there, at least one I know of. Uh, uh he, he was a, as a, a teenager, he, he stood in the, in the tour corridor for po- probably more than four hours one day.
4: Yeah. Just watching, watching, watching everybody draw and stuff. He was just one of those kids that was totally into it. There was a lot of people that had that. And then we also had, there was some people that worked, um, as, uh, uh, well, Nathan Greeno, didn't he come from the other side of the glass, too? I think
3: so. Yeah, I think, yeah.
4: Yeah. So, it, it, anyway, it was there's all those kind of stories about not only the people on our side of the studio side, but then people that were so influenced by the tour that went through that later got into animation or people that worked for the parks on the park side that later got into animation and yeah. became you know, really well-known, well-regarded directors and animators.
0: How cool. Now, Mulan was the first. There were only a couple after that, right? Three. There were three total: uh, Brother Bear and Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Wow. Uh, at Barry, Barry, you started a film there that was going to be the last film
3: produced in in the Florida studio. Well, uh, yeah, but they shut down the studio and the film, and they shut down studio in Australia, and they shut down studio in Tokyo, and they shut down studio in Paris. Yeah. That was two thousand, late two thousand three. Actually, the official end date was early two thousand four. But it was amazing, you know, looking back, you don't know all the reasons why, but, uh, you know, the nine eleven attacks and that kind of stuff, uh, a couple of years earlier, a lot of corporations were really sort of recoiling and sort of pulling back and sort of cautious about what they were doing. And uh, so, yeah, I don't really know, but uh, it was, I think, you know, Disney wanted to go with their first fully CG film, and uh, they wanted to do that in Burbank, and It ended up Disney Worldwide, Disney Animation Worldwide went from about 2,500 to maybe 3,000 back down to about, I think, 400 in Burbank at that time. So basically, from a business standpoint, and and Michael Eisner was on his way out, and new management was in at feature animation, and they didn't really get my film. But yeah, it was the the most heartbreaking time professionally that I've been through. But, you know, most movies don't get made. That's what people don't understand. A lot of things get developed, even at Disney, even at Pixar, that don't get made. And my film that I worked on for two years just didn't get made. It was called and, my, uh, Peoples. My, yeah, Peoples my, was my Peoples. My Peoples was My Peoples, yeah, also known as uh, A Few Good Ghosts was one title. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was set in Appalachia. Dolly Parton was doing a voice. Ricky Skaggs was doing music. Uh, we had Hal Holbrook doing a voice. We had Charles Durnham doing a voice. And, uh, yeah, it was – a. It was a, A fun idea, but it just sometimes it doesn't happen. Yeah, definitely.
0: But it's funny. Like, I feel like if that were a thing today, maybe you could go to Netflix or Hulu or any number of other. Oh, yeah,
4: definitely. Yeah, that's interesting. There's all
0: kinds of outputs
4: nowadays. But, you know, at the time it was a different time and that was a that was a dark time. But going back to uh, because you guys are, you know, theme park enthusiasts, I got to say we could tell a couple quick stories. I remember when we first started there at the studio and, and like Barry was saying, yeah, this, this studio was the newest studio, but it was definitely designed for the flow of the, the, the visitors, the, what, what do we call them? Um, we, we guess. used to call guests, the guests. Yeah. Yeah. You can't call them tourists, call them guests. Um, but the guests, you know, it was really all about their experience. And then they tried to make it as functional as possible for our experience too. actually in production, but we took it so seriously, all of us. We were just so excited to be part of Disney Animation that you know, to us, it wasn't a theme park attraction, even though to the theme park it was. You know, to us, it was a working, operating studio, and we were going to do the best doggone work that we could do. And so we had a ball making some of those early shorts, and just it was a real family community and stuff like that. But I remember when um, when we first started, they they created a policy for. All of us that came from Burbank, especially people like Barry and um, Barry Temple and Barry Cook and Barry uh, Markcan and stuff, they grand they were called they were saying that we were grandfathered in because we came from the studio side in Burbank, California, to um, the park side. So the big issue for some of the some of the guys were they didn't want to shave off their beard because in the park side, there's uh, you know a definite dress code and appearance code and stuff like that. and beards. At the time, I don't know if they still are, but we're definitely against that. that no mustaches, no beards, yeah, no long so hair.
3: That, no, long that, hair no
4: long hair, you had to be trimmed and everything, you know, off off the ears and all this kind of stuff. And we we're like, what? We are not going for that. None of the artists, you know, coming over from Burbank, California was into that at all. They're like, no, we, <laughs> you know, we're not doing that. And so they got a special allowance for us. That we could come in with facial hair and things like that. Well, we stood stood out when we would go behind the scenes to the commissary or something like that. They, the parks people, knew who we were, and and they did not like us very much. Well, because um, we, we
3: wore we wore street clothes to work every day. We didn't have to. Have
4: yeah, we didn't have costumes
3: and right. stuff. Yeah,
4: we weren't on stage like they were, even though we technically were. There wasn't. Yeah. You know, we had some rules. Obviously, you don't want to do anything, you know, inappropriate while you're at your desk or something. And there was some issues of some artists that had some, you know, really fine artwork, beautiful pieces for inspiration up by their desks, like paintings of nudes and stuff. And they had to take it down. Um, Yeah. And that was that was kind of an issue. But Uh,
3: former president Jimmy Carter visited the studio one day and uh, came and toured the animation department that was fun because vips would come through there princess diana and the boys came through and we were doing mulan actually right and uh and but uh one of the artists i don't know who it was but had a drawing by his desk that he had done by hand with a uh, pin and ink of a of a one dollar bill a crumpled up one dollar bill and uh it was this meticulous detailed drawing of a dollar bill crumpled up like a still life drawing you know and he got a phone call from the secret service a week later about his abilities to draw currency and blah 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 And <laughs> it was it was for real it was crazy
4: whoa uh, yeah there was stuff like that that would, We had Michael Jackson come through, and yep. that was one of the the novelties and kind of the fun things is because they always had a star of the week or something at the at the Disney and Jim Studios, and they George they Lucas came by often. Yep. Okay. Oh, we had um, and because they opened a Muppets ride. You remember we had um, Jim Henson. Uh, Jim Henson come in and uh, um, shortly
3: before he died, like two months before he died.
4: Yeah, we had. We had, you know, obviously Frank and Ollie and some of the Nine Old Men, but then there was voices um, from some of the Disney movies would come in. Um, So if we didn't meet them because we worked on the movies, sometimes they would just come in and do like signings and stuff as part of the Disney MGM's things. And I remember we had uh, there was also another great story is when we uh, when we first started there, we were small enough. We were only like 50 cast members, if you will, 50 artists that were working at the at the studio so we we're a pretty small team um and i remember my brother and i particularly but other people would do this too we had one uh golf cart that was kind of owned by disney the the florida animation studio and at lunchtime we would take that out and uh, because we kind of knew the person that was in charge of it and they'd let us go out and we'd go all along the back tour you know where they have the at the time they had that ride um the back tour ride kind of like oh, the back lot yeah like the a, back lot thing yeah and we would cruise around there and we would have so much fun. And, and oftentimes we would see uh, the Mouseketeers cause that was filming at the same time. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and at the time oh. we were there, the mouse and we would see these Mouseketeers and they were always like these snotty brat kids, but, <laughs> <laughs> but they would come into the commissary and kind of own the place and act all, you know, rowdy and and they had golf carts. And if we were crazy, they were twice as crazy on the golf carts, but it was people like Britney Spears yeah. and Justin Timberlake and, um, Christine Ryan Gosling, Chris, yeah, Christina Aguilara, Ryan Gosling, that whole group, those guys that, that all started in the mouse, the, the Mickey Mouse club. We're all there when we first started at the studios in 89 or what was it? Who would have known? 90s. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, seriously, so many of them, Carrie Russell, so many of them have gone. Oh yeah. To have huge careers. It's so crazy. I know. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the movie itself because Mulan is based on a Chinese legend and obviously features a lot of Chinese cultural elements, ancestors, guardians, um, especially the idea that women were to bring honor to their family, not by being soldiers, but by being virtuous wives and caretakers. So how did you go about making sure you were handling the material sensitively, but also accurately? Like, were those discussions you had while making the film?
3: Oh, for yeah, Brown. we we did. Sure, we did. Uh, and and the main thing was, you know for, for for when Chris Sanders and I first started developing in Burbank, the main thing for us was we didn't want it to be a feminist uh, sort of idea. We wanted it to be more of an idea of an individual, individualist idea of this person, this young woman, this young this girl did what she did she felt out of necessity you know just to, to, to save her dad she wasn't you know this sometimes the studio would try to push us in anything boys can do i can do better sort of story and yeah. we didn't want to go there at all and we didn't think it was right for the character also you know there was talk early oh should she be a princess and it was like no yeah
4: like, although they've made her a princess uh, now i mean she's
3: <laughs> in the parks they call her princess now but i you know it's like i strongly object to that and uh, I even posted that on Facebook today, after somebody's post. It's like she's not a princess in the story, unless she ended up dumping Shang. It's one and one of the sequels and marrying some prince. But uh, but she wasn't a princess. She was a common girl in the from the country who did what she did out of love and out of sacrifice for her family. And to me, that's a, a pretty deep place to start from a pretty deep well to draw from from the fourth story and everything else after that you know the comedy that could come with her being a woman in a man's army you know all that sort of uh, gender based comedy and the guy's getting dressed up in drag at the end of the story and those kind of things that would could naturally just sort of be icing on the cake to that much deeper meaningful idea
0: it is it is a very powerful moment when the entire country at the end bows down, like following the lead of the emperor. Absolutely. And and also going back to her song Reflection, I think, like, it, I I recently rewatched this film and it wasn't until rewatching it that I realized that I, I've always considered Reflection like an I Wish song. And maybe you guys do, But but listening to it this time, it just felt more like she wasn't necessarily wanting anything. She just yeah. kind of wanted to finally be able to be herself and not what everyone else expected her to be right
4: yeah and she really didn't when she sings that song she doesn't she sings it out of a a yearning and a sadness i guess you will but she is kind of resigned to this is my lot in life this is because i respect my parents because i love my father so much this is what they want for me so i guess i have to be this perfect china doll but you know when will is there going to be a point where and so it's like a questioning. But is there going to be a point where I can really be myself? When I look in the reflection, will I be able to see myself sometime, or this perfect china doll that everybody in society wants me to be? Um, she doesn't know at that point, and that's what I love about that device. Is that almost immediately after that, things change in the world. It's like war comes, and boom, we're into this whole different situation. And her father's going to go off to war in in uh, to represent her family, and he's going to surely die. This changes everything for her. Mm-hmm. So now it's not she doesn't dress and drag because she wants to be. She's a tomboy, like Barry was saying. She's not. It's not who she is that she's like. Oh, I got to be competitive with the boys and I want to kick some booty butt, you know, um, uh, male butt. And it's just more that she wants to save her father. That's that's all it is about. So her motivation kind of is c- consistent. One of the things that I tell people all the time, and I know Barry does too, is that one of the things that I love about Mulan as a Disney heroine is that, and, and really a Disney hero in, in any, when compared to any of the Disney um, heroes of the films, is that she doesn't really change. You know, she ends up changing the rest of the world and how China at that time period sees uh, a woman, but she doesn't have, she doesn't really go through a, a dramatic change in that she knows who she is and it kind of is comfortable in her own skin in the beginning but it's the world that confines her the world is 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 the one that definitely sees her as different and unique and and then ultimately she's through her actions she changes how people regard her and therefore she's able to be who she really was all along
0: i love that so much i've never considered that but that really gives more meaning to reflection because when she says when will my reflection show who i am inside she's really asking when will the world see who I am right. inside. And by the end they do. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah finally
3: they do, you know, yeah. uh, and sort of the, you know, thematic underpinning of the film. We decided it would be, uh, you know, true that song, true to your heart at the end, but, you know, be true to who you are, no matter who you are. And, uh, and let that be the way you live your life. And, and, uh, and you'll, you know, contentment will come and, and great things can happen if you're trying to be someone else or, if, She's It's funny because she was disguised herself as someone else, like maybe her own brother, but a boy version of herself uh, to to finally show who she really was. And that's, uh, you know, sort of a fun part of it, too. She uh, she didn't show her true self on the battlefield until it was uncovered who she was, Uh, but uh, her true self finally came through in the end.
0: Now we've mentioned reflection, we've mentioned true to your heart, but I have to talk about my personal favorite song, and I'll also make a man out of you. I'll I'll I know what it is, Derek. <laughs> well, I That's do.
4: Everybody's favorite.
0: It, well, first of all, like when I remember seeing this in the theaters and listened to that song every day for like the next five years. But also, I think people who aren't even necessarily familiar with this movie know this song. And not just because it's great musically, but also visually in the film, like it's such an empowering scene. And I still start singing it whenever someone says, let's get down to business. Uh, But what memories do you have of working with the songwriters or maybe working with the late, great Jerry Goldsmith, who provided the terrific score? Yeah, that's two questions, really, because Jerry wasn't involved
4: with I'll Make a Man Out of You or any of the songs. He came on later, of course, to do the score. But um, tons of tons of great memories um, about I'll Make a Man Out of You. And the funny thing is that I'll say off the top of the bat is that I think, uh, and I'm probably speaking for Barry too, that we really thought that Mulan's reflection song was going to be the one that everybody remembers, the one that was iconically connected to Mulan. And I've been kind of surprised to tell you the truth over the years that, I'll make a man out of you. And I guess it's the energy of it and the fun of it. And you're right. The visuals are there and everything that, that has made that so impactful. But I go to screenings now. um, So I was just in Mexico recently and we did a screening of Mulan for its 20th anniversary. And to hear everybody, the audience breaks out when I'll make a man out of you comes on, then they're singing it. They're singing it full on in Spanish. And it was, (laughs) it was like so incredible to hear a huge theater full of people singing that at you know full volume, um, and you could tell they just they just loved it. They just loved it. Um, but I, I remember the the, the storyboard process. Um, uh, a storyboard artist who later became a director named Chris Williams did the storyboards for that sequence almost a hundred percent. And it, for for a director, a, a song like that is a real jewel because it we told so much story in a short amount of time, and that's really mm-hmm. it's great to have a tent post kind of song like that that can help us as a device to help tell a lot of story in a short amount of time and it really is about her arc of going from you know the loser soldier the worst and not liked and you know looked down upon to all of a sudden kind of the hero and standout soldier by the end of it and it's, it's this whole training montage but it's also there's so many other little b and c stories there with mushu and with the the commander and you know shang um there's just a lot going on there and it's very rich and visual. Like you said, very colorful, a lot of action to it. It's, it was just so well composed, um, almost from the get go, Chris Sanders, uh, or sorry, Chris Williams, who boarded it, just did an absolute fabulous job.
0: I agree. Were you guys involved at all in like, is this like a separate process for the songwriters and the directors or is it like, well, no, you're not quite telling the story we want to tell with this.
3: Oh, we, we always get in the room with, you know, it's always in the room with them and talking about the moment and talking about the, what we want to get out of the song. And, you know, there may have been, you know, you may make reference to things you've seen in the past, you know, a training montage. A lot of movies have a training montage, yeah. you know, whether it's a boxing movie or whatever, you know, so there's it's sort of a staple of certain types of movies. And, and so you, you know, you sort of, you know, and, and also this sort of idea of, you know, uh, the woman in a man's world, and 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 the captain uh, trying to make men out of these boys, basically. You know, that was his job. So, uh, you know, sort of took off from there. So it's a pretty pretty simple concept. But I remember I remember meetings uh, with the writers, uh, with the composers, and the story artists all in one room, just sort of hashing out ideas. And the story yeah. artists would be doing sketches, and blah, 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 what if it were like this? And... You know, it's it becomes a really big conversation that eventually the best ideas sort of rise to the top.
4: Yeah, and it's not, it's not like I think a lot of people think. Oh, yeah, the the song just kind of came up. Maybe the music, you know,
3: uh, composers just
4: created the song and kind of pitched it. Hey, wouldn't it be cool to? It's not like that. It, it, these things start really early in the process. And for a, a good musical, you need your you know your music composers to be in the room, like Barry's saying, with the story artists, with the screenwriters early on. Because they become the tent posts, the the framework that you that you build the story on. um we we knew from the beginning through our research that we wanted a training montage. We wanted to see Mulan get into the army and fail and and then become successful. So we knew that there needed to be certain elements there in that. And, and so before even a song, we knew we had a sequence there that we needed in the film. And then and we also had a lot of research. We had done um, a bunch of research on, uh, how um like shaolin, shaolin temple um training and some weird crazy exercises that they did in the shaolin temples in the ancient days of learning to become you know master martial arts uh, uh fighters and stuff and we knew that there was certain elements that we wanted to get into whatever that sequence was so we already had a lot of research done looked at other movies and then it was kind of one day you're or over a length of time, you're kind of planning out the songs with the writers, the composers of the songs and going, well, we think we got one here. We think, you know, you start spotting it, spotting song areas in the movie, you know, oh, right here, we're going to need this. And, oh, you know, Mulan needs to have her song up front here and this, oh, and maybe when, you know, in the very beginning, we should start the film with a song pretty close to the beginning. And maybe it could be about this, you know? And so when you're talking about the story structure, like I said, those songs become the tent posts, and they they're started very early in discussion.
0: Great, I think. I guess there are four songs. I might be wrong. Well, and then True to Your Heart. Um, but I feel like there's just the right number of songs in the movie to keep the story going, but also be entertaining.
3: Yeah, it doesn't really feel like a musical. It sort of came, you know, sort of like at the end of that sort of musical period, you know, of the. Uh, you know, Little Mermaid, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. It sort of it was at the tail end of that, and uh, I think you know maybe if I I don't think Tony or I had a choice that it was going to have songs in it. I think it was <laughs> yeah. I think we were told it's it's going to have songs in it yeah. by the studio. So uh, you know, so well that's fine. You know, and so we have we, we start working with that with that idea.
4: But that, yeah, that was Barry's right. I mean, if we had our druthers, and this is kind of the little known secret of Mulan, is that if we had our druthers, it wouldn't have been a musical. Mm-hmm. And and I and I know I, I tell people that, like when I was in Mexico recently and stuff, and people are aghast because they think, Oh, but we wouldn't have I'll make a man of you and, Mulan right. find, and they you know, and they think about what wouldn't have been. Um, but you know, when we were starting the film, we had this perspective of this kind of very dramatic thrust in the story, um, very big emotions. The comedy we wanted to put in there, um, that it was it was set in this uh, you know um, um, background of a war. So there's troops and stuff and fighting, and we just saw it more as an action and dramatic mo- kind of film with some comedy more than we did. And then when you throw the musical on it, it just was like, uh, you know, there, you start worrying about tone as a director. You're like there's yeah. a lot of elements that were kind of Balanced. having to shuffle around and balance. And how's this going kind to of
0: feel? And we, we just really didn't know. We just really didn't know until it all came together. Yeah, I can see that because it's almost like they're asking you to kind of fit that Disney formula. But this is your first Disney film and you want to make it your own, obviously.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, just think of how unlikely it is if you were to even at that time to go to Disney and say, oh, we want to make a war picture. Disney animation films aren't war movies. You know? Right. That's, that that isn't, doesn't even fit. You know? uh, so the fact that we pulled that off, period, is sort of uh, amazing looking back at it. that's uh, a Disney film set in wartime.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess there's no song after uh, the, now I can't even think of the name of it, but where they talk about uh, all the all the women. <laughs> I don't even know the oh, name of it. Oh, uh, yeah, A Girl Worth Fighting For. Yeah, that's that's the last song before... Credits, which which is a nice balance. Like, okay, now let's focus on the war in the series parts. You there's know? a
4: re, there's a reprieve of that song later when you know Yao right. and Chin Po and Ling dresses dress and drag themselves. You know, we we get a there's a short little reprieve. So yeah, it is one of when you look at the Disney musical structure, I think Mulan has the least amount of songs, original songs in it, than any other Disney musical because I think the norm is more like seven or eight or something like that. And like you said, we have maybe five and a couple reprises, so um, it is it's light on the on the musical, but it's only because of what we just talked about. We were constantly like, how do we how do we make this a musical? Does it want to be a musical? Does the film uh, lend itself to being a musical? And there's just too many moments that we knew didn't lend itself to to being a musical. So it's kind of heavy. It's kind of heavy with the songs up front and in the middle, and then. Not very much at the end, Yeah, <laughs> you know?
0: Now, there are lighter moments, of course. I'm thinking mainly Mushu. Uh, so I recently rewatched this, and I got to say, I'm a big critic of side characters. Like, there are so many where I'm like, they're not adding anything to the story. Like, let's get rid of them. Right. I love these characters. I think there are so many great gags with them. Like, when uh, Mushu winds up creaky like an alarm clock, I think that's great. Or when he jumps in the ink and he's like, the typewriter sounds are happening yeah. as he jumps around the parchment. I love that um but let's talk about Eddie Murphy who really in my opinion gave life to the character of mushu and made him his own did you it was the first
3: animated uh voice he had he had ever done so he was very open you know whatever you guys want let me know uh he was really you know sort of into doing something like that he says you know uh my kids are you know tired of seeing me jump across the hoods of cars and cop movies and stuff but uh, but he's, he, he was, he was like really, really into it. And, uh, and it was fun to, to, to record him.
4: Yeah. For him, he wanted something. And you hear this oftentimes from voice people. I was like, I want something that I can show my kids because oftentimes rated, you know, Eddie was doing R rated stuff or, or even the PG 13 stuff that he was doing early on was probably too much for his younger kids. So, um, to actually do a Disney film, I think was, you know, kind of a great connect for him.
0: I'm curious to know whether or not he ad-libbed, and if so, how much?
3: No. It's funny because, you know, you think of Robin Williams in Aladdin. Yes. He he wrote most of his lines in that movie. He ad-libbed. If you talk to Ron and John, you couldn't stop the guy. He was another VIP guest we had at the Florida studio for a day. And uh, cr- crazy man. And just was always on and always thinking and always trying to make people laugh and always ad-libbing. Eddie Murphy, uh, from my experience and from Tony's experience, he would agree, very serious about his comedy, which is a strange thing. Yeah, he would come down. We recorded his house at his studio, his private studio, and and he would come down sort of, you know, very serious. not And he might he would have read his script very carefully. He would have made notes if he had any ideas. They were lines that he had written in advance of the session. He'd given it a lot of thought. And he didn't ad-lib, I don't think, hardly ever that I remember. He did
4: try some things, you know, and there are some, you know, Eddie Eddie lines in there. But just
0: kind of off the top of his head, no. That's so funny to me because when I hear the character of Mushu, it just seems like his kind of comedy. But I guess that's just how much of himself he
3: put into the character. Well, we also knew we were writing the part for Eddie Murphy, too, at some point. sure. So you, you sort of say... You know, a little bit of Axel Foley, sort of not bad, <laughs> uh, but don't push it too hard because actors don't want to play characters they've already played. Yeah, either. Well, you know? And that was that was a funny little
4: story too that we um, that we made the mistake of asking him to do the well, well do that. You know, you know your laugh. Can you do maybe after this line you could you know do that laugh that laugh? And he's like, what what laugh? And he was like really putting us on the spot. You know, it's like, oh, come on. You know, you know, the, you know, get get that. And he's like, uh, that, that laugh was Axel Foley. That was part of that character. I don't, I mean, he wasn't disrespectful or or mad at us, but he just like kind of took us aside kind of a moment where he's like, that that was just for another character, and I don't I don't feel like that's right for this thing, and I, I feel like Mushu needs to be kind of, kind of something new, and you know I don't I don't want to just go down that you know that become my thing and whatever, um, because that was just that you know so even though and, and the funny part is that he would just naturally kind of it was kind of how he naturally laughed to a certain degree, so there are yeah. elements of that kind of Axel Foley or what you think of as the Axel Foley laugh in yeah. Mulan, but they just came out naturally. Yeah.
3: And then, of course, after that, he went to do Donkey and Shrek, which I think was great character. And uh, and he did this own TV series, The PJ's, where he did several voices for that. Yeah, motion. Uh, yes. They did it at Will Vinton Studio, which later became Laika Studio.
0: Yeah, with Shrek, he he did I guess go back, go right back into that animated world. Uh, but for me, Mushu will always have a more special place in my heart than Donkey. So.
3: us us too I bet
0: bet. (laughs) we got him first that's right
3: we got him first that's right we did
0: do you remember any ideas or early concepts for the film or maybe like gags animated gags that were cut or maybe morphed into something else well one of the
4: things that we were just talking about Eddie Murphy and Mushu is that Mushu started out as two dragons at one time and this was actually before I came on um i came on a year after a barrier so so there was a lot of development done before but there was a two-headed dragon at one time where the kind of a yin and yang idea where they're arguing all the time and then ultimately it just it, you know uh, through playing with it it would just became obvious that you know mulan starts when you have two characters that are really funny and they're working off of each other all the time and this yin and yang idea then it becomes obvious that, okay, well, what's what's Mulan's part in all this? She just ends up nodding her head and watching these two characters the whole time. They're not interacting as much with her. So um, to make it, to whittle it down to just one dragon that's her kind of conscience, if you will, or her support um, really makes a lot more sense. It seems obvious now. That's like one of those things where it's like, you look back, you're like, yeah, well, duh. But, well, maybe
3: uh, it's a little strange for a sidekick to have a sidekick, the Cricket. Yeah. Great, that was a bit yeah. odd, and that was sometimes hard to work in. But it worked out for us there, and especially since since Cricky didn't have a speaking voice, just sound, yeah. that it worked out much easier.
4: Well, on a side note on that, we should we should tell our Joe Grant story. Um, oh, yeah. Joe Grant was an old time uh, storyboard artist and and uh, character designer that worked for Disney all the way back to Snow White. I mean, that's that's how far back he was one of the oldest Disney employees. He had a they don't count his his years totally because he had a, a duration where he left the studio had his own studio and stuff like that did stuff outside of Disney and then came back in the 80s or the 90s I could think it was so he had the role he had a great role because he had so much regard and people you know respected his wisdom that um the people the executives at disney feature animation let joe kind of just float around and be a part of any production that he wanted to he could kind of join pocahontas for a day or two and do some gags and drawings and be in the story meetings and suggest things he was kind of like this you know obi-wan kenobi of story yeah. if you will and so for us on mulan he he really was attracted to mulan and spent a lot of time on it and crickey to this day is in the movie because of joe grant i yeah. think we could both say because there was a time because we were we were battling with you know okay we got mulan and we got mushu and then you throw in Cricky, and you know how do we keep him going the storyboard artists were having problems with like i don't know how to fit Cricky into the scene and how do i make him work and um and again it, it seems obvious now after we've solved that problem but at the time it was a big issue and it we almost got rid of Cricky. there was Crickey was going to be gone out of the film but it was because of joe grant he would literally do little doodles and drawings, and I, I, I call it the Chinese uh, Chinese uh, water torture approach. He he literally would just every day like put a new drawing of Cricky underneath our doors or something. Hey, try that. Hey, what about this little gag or you know, and and make suggestions with Cricky only Cricky, like nothing else. Just constantly every single day there was a new Cricky drawing or gag or moment or idea or piece of line. He wanted him to talk too, so he would come up with like a song or you know, it was, but. But he is he is Crickey and he's the reason Crickey's in the movie.
0: I love it. I I think I don't want to bash any other Disney films necessarily, but I think Moana specifically has just like one too many side characters and they didn't know what to do with them. But I was watching this. One of my favorite little scenes in Mulan is where I think it's Shang who talks down to Mulan. And you see Mushu trying to kind of run at him like, oh, I'm going to get you. But Cricky is just standing back there like holding on to his leg. Like, no, you're not going anywhere. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
4: Yeah, because it was almost like Mushu was like a bad conscious to conscience, like a Jiminy Cricket kind of character to Mulan. Because everything he did really got her into more trouble or she was not a help. But Cricky was like a good conscience to Mushu because he was really the best parts of Mushu. He was the best parts of any of us because he just was he was wiser. He was smarter. Um, he had a bigger heart, you know, so that's kind of what Cricky became.
0: Is there anything from the film you like to tell people to look out for, like any Easter eggs or other overlooked aspects
4: it's funny you mentioned this. I was just thinking about this too, and I was looking online. I, there's one Easter egg that um that I never hear anybody talk about. Um, you know, people find that the, there's quite a few little Mickey Mouse uh, Easter eggs or, you know the uh, intentional or unintentional that people have found in Mulan. But the one that we did intentionally is I've never seen on a forum anywhere. and it's when um when Mushu first introduces himself, to Mulan, he comes out like in the big preacher thing. I am the great Mushu, and you know, and and all of a sudden he comes out from behind the rock, you know, and because we, we see his shadow, and he's real big and grand. And then he comes out, and we see he's really small. And the horse immediately stomps on him. Right, Khan is just like bam, 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 and squishes him into the ground. Well, there's one shot there right after Khan uh, squishes him into the ground, where he cuts him, Mushu, and he's kind of like in a funny pose there. But he's um you can see hoof prints all around him and the hoof prints make a Mickey Mouse. Uh,
3: no. Stop it. And it's funny, that scene that scene of smashed uh Mushu, uh I forget who animated it now, but we uh, maybe maybe Tom maybe Tom No, I think it was Rob Corley. I wanna our, say. But I know we had him redo it like four or five times because we just kept saying, Rob, it's not funny enough yeah we got to laugh instantly when we see this guy he's got to be really distorted really smashed up yeah so it was only like one drawing really with a a little blink on his eyelid or something but but yeah we had to do that thing at least three times before before we sort of got what we were happy with yeah i've
0: never not only have i never seen that but yeah with the internet nowadays i feel like i surely would have read that somewhere but no never inside scoop Inside scoop. You want another one? We got one more. Sure.
3: Back in 1998, I don't think the term Easter egg was even right. A term. right. It was the Pixar guys, I think,
4: that came up with that or started using the Easter egg, and I think it first started out with DVD stuff, and you know, Easter eggs actually embedded in the DVD um, when Pixar was doing it. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's always been gags in and little side things or inside jokes really in the movies goes back to like rescuers and all these things but anyway um one other one that that very few people know about um and i've never had anybody tell me they found this but i've told a couple people since we made the movie so i'm sure people have found it since then there's one scene in the movie that mushu has a purple tip to his tail usually the color model of mushu is that he has a red tip to his tail There's one scene in the movie where he has a purple tail and I've never had anybody tell me where that is. Do you know where it is, Derek? I don't know where it is. Yes, you do. You know this story. Okay. Here's the background. So historically, um, you know, we work with a lot of executives and um, Barry and I, you know, as directors, Work with the production designers and the whole team get things to a point where we're happy with it and then we have to kind of show it to our executives our bosses for for their kind of buy off and approval things especially as we go things get more and more easier to get approved and you know you just kind of develop this everybody's kind of head is in the same space and we, we we get going pretty fast but towards the middle I would say of the film when we started doing, because that's about the time you start getting into color models. Like what are the final colors of these characters We're we had a session where Tom Schumacher, who was then the um, VP of development uh, for Disney studios, feature animation came down to the Florida studio to do kind of a tour and you know a, a pep up speech, but also some approval sessions with us as we were going to show him some work. And we we showed him the whole cast of characters. You remember this, Barry? I think you're you're getting it now. Um, but we had a session with with Tom where we showed him all the color characters Mulan, different you know different dress looks and stuff like that, all in color. And then we got to Mushu, and everything was going great. He loved everything. We got to Mushu, and um, we talked about our whole philosophy with with the coloring and and one of the things that we pointed out was we really liked in the color model and this is something that hans Bacher was involved with who was our production designer and barry and i bought off on and we loved the idea tom tom bancroft my brother who's the supervising animator loved it we were all in agreement um mushu has these two horns on his head and and they're um they're mostly like a bluish purple and then at the end of his tail, he has just the tip of his tail, we made that same color, bluish purple. And to us, it was like kind of a visual stop sign because he's mostly red and then yellow on his belly, you know. And But for the tip of his head all the way to his tail, it had these this bluish purple on it and it just kind of worked together, I think. We liked it. We presented it. Tom Schumacher was like, I don't like the tail, you know, as the one thing. <laughs> I don't like this. What? Why is this? And it, for no reason he wanted to see it red and really kind of demanded that we make it red and and even after asking do you like this Hans do you like this Barry do you like this Tony what about you Tom and we we're all like yeah no I like it I like it yeah that's what well, we we did it that way obviously we like it and um and he said I don't like it change it and then it kind of left that's what I remember in the meeting was I don't it. remember that meeting at all <laughs> you don't remember that oh my gosh it totally okay. happened and so for one kind of a way of <laughs> and it's and it is us as directors being you know uh, a little bullheaded but for one scene to kind of get back at tom schumacher we painted the tail the bluish uh purple uh-huh. on the tip and it's the scene where i'm going to say it officially it's um after after the avalanche um uh mulan and the horse go over the edge remember mm-hmm. and um uh yao uh, or somebody shoots the arrow she grabs it and they're starting to pull him up right they're starting this this crazy you know defies logic that one you know one <laughs> one rope can pull up this you know 500 pounds horse or one ton horse and right and a girl and a, but there's one shot there where as they're being pulled up you cut to the horse and Mulan and you see and Mushu has a line in it i can't remember exactly what the line is it's you the man aren't you Yeah you the man oh well sort of or
3: yeah well sort of yeah yeah,
4: something like that. Uh-huh. And that's the one. That's the, the scene. Uh it is a three shot, you know, the horse, Mulan and um and Mushu, so he's a little smaller in it. But you can definitely see the, the different colored tip on his tail.
0: Hey. You showed Tom. Tom <laughs> I Tom <would>
4: Schumacher, yeah. <laughs> I would never remember that. You would never tell that story. You're just you, you probably remember it, but you were just being nice to Tom Schumacher.
1: Uh-huh.
4: <laughs> well now I have to watch it
0: again. I just watched it. Believe it or not, I did not catch that. I can't believe it. Man. Um, have you watched the movie recently, by the way? I'm wondering how you view it
3: now. Like, do you... Tony said he just saw Mexico. The last time I watched it through was in Los Angeles last January. We had, There was a screening at El Capitan and it was at uh, their th- Throwback Thursday screening. Uh-huh. And so Tony got a bunch of us to come down and, and uh, some of the crew that was working out in Burbank, they came out and so yeah, we, that's the last time I sort of sat and watched it in a movie theater. Uh, it was great. It was fun to do that, and a lot of a lot of fans, uh, and uh, in the audience, and surprisingly, a lot of Asian young ladies in their twenties, college age, yeah. uh, in the audience. A lot, maybe thirty percent of the audience. So it's amazing, sort of that impact. And yeah. another thing, just to, i mean, sort of sidetrack off of that, but. Tony's recently been to China. I was there uh, most recently, probably two years ago, and I had not been back uh, since the movie. But I had no understanding how big the movie is in China and how regarded yeah. it is, and how it has become sort of the the version of Mulan's story for the entire culture. You know, if you if you talk about what's what's the story of Mulan, it doesn't go back to the earlier versions. It's sort of it sort of is the Disney version, and uh, they really, they really love it. And they really regard it, you know, as a, as as you know, their own, you know, a story out of their own culture, well told. And uh, so that's a real big compliment.
0: Oh, for sure.
4: Those are the things you can't really, you don't really know. You can't really um, expect that to happen. You just kind of go into it, going, well, I hope we don't get stoned when we go to China and show this movie. I mean, that was really our biggest hope, I think, when we were working on it was like. We did a, an exhaustive amount of of research into the culture. Into, we we're we not Chinese. We're two two white guys doing a movie about a Chinese girl. Oh, right. mm-hmm. So we knew that going into it that we got to really dig deep into this. And so we did. We Our production team and our production designers and art department really spent an ex- exhaustive amount of time. This is all pre-internet. So you got to remember, they're looking at books. We're looking at videos. They took a trip to China. We took a lot of photographs. But that's really all we could access. <clears throat> and so we were, from that, we gleaned as much as we could and put it all into the movie as much as
3: possible. We were also fortunate to have, at that period of time in, in the history of the world, uh, the you know mid-90s, just after the Tiananmen Square uprising in China, and a lot of students who were in the United States at the time uh, were, were granted political asylum. Uh, by the United States, and were able to stay. And uh, some of those students b- became artists on our film, like Saiping Locke, David Ye- David uh, Yang. yeah, and uh, so we had we had some great uh, uh, Shiindlin fan. We had some great Chinese artists working with us daily too. Uh, you right. know so those guys were great to be able to sort of call us on cultural things from time to time. At one time, the scene where Mulan walks into the camp for the first time, you know, the guys are picking their feet and yeah. picking their nose and lighting farts and stuff like that. And, uh, and one of the Chinese artists came to me and he said, I think this is insulting to Chinese men. I said, no, 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 no. This, w- this is all men. Right. <laughs> this is all men. They're gross. And we just want to show that men are gross. And they happened to be Chinese men in this army, but yeah, you know, we weren't trying to say anything culturally specific. It was gender-specific, sort of. We were trying to make a joke about that men are pigs, you know, yeah. sort of.
0: You mean you don't pick at your toes with chopsticks? What? <laughs> right, chopsticks? right.
4: I guess that's the only Chinese element is that they use chopsticks. chopsticks but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, that was the, you know, so our, our intent was to be able to go to China because we knew that one day – there would be a premiere in China somewhere, and it was in Hong Kong ultimately. But we wanted to be able to kind of hold our heads high and be proud of the work that we did and, and hope for the best that the, the Chinese people themselves, because this folklore is very much Chinese, it's their story. So we wanted to present it respectfully so that they would enjoy it, but also that it was universally accepted. That means Western audiences had to enjoy it too. So that was that was one of our big challenges. But to be respectful first and foremost to the Chinese was uh probably job number one from the beginning. Yeah,
0: that's great. Now we're getting more and more news lately about the live action Mulan that Disney is currently working on. Any thoughts on that? Well,
3: I like uh the director Nikki Carl, she's she's great. I mean, well writers a fantastic movie about a young girl sort of coming of age and coming to into her own and stuff and and uh i know she did uh, north country with Charlize Theron and i think she's a great director i don't know if they're going to do it as a musical i haven't heard anything about it they never talk to us about it at all you know or invite us on the set or anything yeah. like that uh they don't really we sort of made our version and and uh you know we did our version and she's going to do her version i guess yeah, well, it's funny that we talked about the music earlier
0: because you said, you know, kind of the music was kind of a curveball. If you had had it your own way, you probably wouldn't have had music. And what's funny to me is when they first announced this live-action Mulan, there was a little blur, a little blurb, maybe the Hollywood Reporter that where the director was quoted as saying, "There's not going to be music." And yeah. instantly the internet was in an uproar. Like, how are you going to make a Milan movie without music? And then very quickly, well, and that, that,
4: that, um, posting, I think came out right before the beauty and the beast, the new live action beauty and the beast that came out. And which is almost frame. I mean, this is my own little irk about it, but it feels like frame to frame, frame by frame. And just the songs and the costumes and the shots so much like the animated version. Um, but it was a huge success, right? Right. So of course, Disney is probably rethinking that now, but the last, yeah, the last that I heard, it wasn't going to have the songs, and it's not going to have Shang in it. My personal feeling about it, um, similar to Barry, is that um, I actually like, I like that they're trying to make it different and unique. It sounds like the little bit I've heard about the story and some of the elements, and if it doesn't have the songs, okay, well then that's probably just going back to a choice that we we would have made early on too, which is to make it more stronger in the action element. And that's probably what they're going to do is it's probably going to have a lot more action to it. And those kind of dynamics, those dramatic elements, too, will probably be accentuated, um, which is and I don't think it's going to have Mushu in it, too. I, I've heard right, that.
3: Right. right. So,
4: um, you know, yeah,
3: it's more it's like a, a different choice, movie, or, you know, serious war sort of movie or something. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what it's like. We'll see how the people react to it. I'm looking forward to seeing it, but I don't. I have no I idea what, what's happening with it. Yeah, I agree with you
0: completely about Beauty and the Beast. In my mind, like if you're going to remake a film, like you need a reason to do a right. different version and it was very much the same version. So I'm all for them taking some chances with this. Yeah. We'll see. Um since we're a podcast about the parks, I got to ask is there a part of you that ever wishes Disney had built some sort of Mulan attraction? Have you ever imagined that?
4: Oh, yeah, that would have been awesome. I I totally think they should have because I one of the reasons that Disney studios wanted to make Mulan is they wanted to tap into a different culture that they hadn't explored. They, they have so many of these early animated films that are based on European folktales, Hans Christian Andersen things. Um, and to explore China in a, in a film really opened up kind of the breadth of the world of animation a little bit for in the Disney canon. Why not see that in the parks too? I still don't see that in the parks. I feel like that that Asian element and to theme it after Mulan is a no brainer, should be part
3: of the parks. And I, I just don't see it. I don't know. It's like, this is probably a big true confession for me, but I'm not a fan of the Disney parks because I don't like crowds. It's a sort <laughs> of personal thing. I don't like to be in big crowds and I don't like to stand in the heat waiting in line to ride a ride or something like that. I just personally don't find it to be very enjoyable. Uh, but, uh, and also, too, when I go to see movies, animated movies are like the last movie I choose to see. I, I try to keep up on everything, but I'm much more of a live-action movie fan. Uh, I don't know if I'm even a fan. I just uh, a student, really, of movies and filmmaking is, is sort of where where I you know I love to. My mind is always at you know how did they do this or why did they tell the story this way or why did they cast that particular actor or whatever. But uh, yeah, so I don't really give a lot of thought to. I don't know what a what would be like an avalanche ride or something like you go down this. <laughs> You pull up on, a on a horse. I would be all for that. That sounds that sounds like a blast. Maybe it could be just a little nude bathing area. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, the
4: little lake scene, right with the right. yeah the lily pads and stuff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I hope Imagineers are listening. <laughs> These are gold. Yeah. All right. Well, here we are, twenty years later. Twenty years. That's crazy. Um, as we wrap up, any thoughts about just the legacy of this film or what you hope? new audiences take from it
4: well you know it's funny you early on uh, barry was commenting about how we didn't make this or design this film to be a real feminist statement she's not a you know a feminist woman fighting for you know her rights and stuff like that and it's true we never intended that and yet 20 years later i see that people really pointed our film as as being a real feminist feminist statement and it it, it has empowered women in a big way I think one of the most important things, though, that have happened to me through the making or through through the time that this movie has been out there and how it's endured, I once had a a father, a Chinese father, come up to me and thanking me for making Mulan because he had a, a daughter um, that he took to the movies and it helped him to have a discussion about that she could be anything she wanted to be that she could grow into. Um, just like Mulan that she can be whoever she wanted to be. She didn't have to be restricted by her her culture or what people thought of women or what people and it and it opened up a dialogue that has that really changed their relationship and she, he was very proud of the fact that they had a a movie that they could call their own as Chinese people and but as a father and a daughter to um to bring them together and and that he could support his fa- his daughter with and tell her that she could be anything she wanted to be, and that was that was so. I mean, I almost cried when that uh, guy told. <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah. know him. I didn't know him. He was just a guy that you know. He. I was at an event or something, and he came up to me and told me that story, and um, I got very emotional about it, and just it hit me in that moment
3: the impact of the movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, what what else could you ask for? Really, that's great.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I think we were sort of, sort of unknowingly, but sort of way ahead of our time and because a lot of films, you know, like you saw like what Wonder Woman did last year and just the female empowerment sort of idea is so strong and and coming up so strong in in movies. And, uh, you know, the, the the new live action Mulan is directed by a woman and, and, you know, the, almost, you know, the things are happening now. And, uh, we, you know, we, we were, we were sort of just like, you know, telling us a simple story in a way uh, that had this st- very strong female lead character, and she wasn't a princess. her Her desire wasn't to only a man. I mean, you think of characters like Little Mermaid. It's like what? You just want a man? You know, that's all you want in life. You know, right. pretty lame sort of, pretty lame sort of goals. You know, sort of thing. And uh, so I think we were, you know, uh, sort of way ahead without maybe even trying to be. We weren't trying to be. We just we had. We Tony and I both have daughters, and you know, yep. and I think they were big inspiration for, for us. You know, they were little at the time, but they've grown up to. And one of my daughters married a Chinese guy. A hey, Chinese guy. So I have a I have a, a son-in-law who looks just like Captain Chang. You know. <laughs> 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 yeah, and
4: she's got a tattoo, doesn't she? Your daughter has a Mulan tattoo.
3: Yeah, the Mulan's comb. She has tattooed.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. both of our daughters were born. Uh, your daughter, I think, was born during the making of Mulan, right? And my my first daughter was born during the making of... Or, sorry, my second yeah, daughter
3: was born, yeah, our born during the making. Born, yeah, our second daughter was born during Mulan and yeah. after moving to Florida. Yeah, and uh, maybe before Mulan started, but after moving to Florida. And,
0: uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's going to be very important to you for the rest of your lives. So... Um, and it's important to me, too, and for a lot of people, I think, love this film. It it holds up. I, I can say that from having watched it recently. In fact, y- you know, in this day and age with, like, the hashtag MeToo movement, part of me expected to cringe a couple times during a movie that was made 20 years ago, and I didn't one single time, so. No. Yeah. No, <laughs> Thanks, Derek. You're
4: cool. <laughs> All
0: right. Well, thank, thank you both for uh, looking back at this film with me. 20 years, it's hard to believe. Probably harder for you to believe. Um, it goes fast. It goes really fast. Yeah,
3: I bet. It does.
0: I bet. Um, well, did, do you guys have anything you want to plug or anything direct to direct our listeners to?
4: Well, I have a film coming out this year and um, so whenever I can, I try and mention it. It's We don't have a release date quite yet, so it's a little hard to talk about. But Animal Crackers is a film that I've done independently with some of my, my other friends and you know, just we had a great time making it. I really want people to see it when it comes out. Looks like it'll be in October uh, domestically. Uh, it's opening in China right now in July, July 27th it's opening. So if you're in China listening to this podcast, go check it out. It's, it's called Magical Circus in China. They changed the name, but it's same movie. Um, and you know we have an all-star cast in it too, so it's really a, a joy to make. Um, I also have a podcast, the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast, that I do with my twin brother Tom Bancroft, who was the supervising animator, yes, of Mushu. Um, and that comes out bi-weekly. It's on iTunes. You can check it out there um and and follow me on instagram i do drawings all the time that i post um I, i'm Guy. that's two a's in Pumba, p-u-m-b-a-a guy on instagram and Guy one on twitter check me out there um but yeah and we'll be uh, and come to uh, come to ctn animation expo guys because uh in in november if you come. Barry and I, and Pam Coates, the producer, and a, a bunch of the team that made this movie great are all going to be there for a 20th anniversary special presentation and panel, and we'd love to have a huge audience of Mulan uh, fans there. Where's that going to be? That's in Burbank, California. So CTN Animation Expo, check it out. Um, Burbank, uh, California, and it's mid-November, I want to say.
3: Oh, well, for me, uh, I just... I just. Uh... I just posted a short live-action film that I made. It's a very strange movie and it's very surreal, and it's called Blinker, and uh, it's posted on YouTube. Maybe you can find it. I just put it up there a few days ago. So,
4: really, I didn't even know about that. That's awesome. I'm yeah, I just—it's
3: it just a weird little thing. My sister and I were talking about, you know, what if what if we had three eyeballs? What would life be like? And it's a, it's about a guy who wakes up one morning and finds he had a has a third eye on top of his head. And uh, it's just uh, it's just it. The movie's just sort of a setup for maybe a longer story. I just made it into like a three and a half minute short film and uh, shot it here in uh, in Orlando on a on a stage here. But uh, yeah, it was just a little whim I had a couple of years ago. I wanted to do something, and uh, so I shot this little idea, and it's just taking me a while to edit it all together. But and I'm about to shoot another short uh, live action film called Sideshow. Which we're shooting here uh, uh, in the end of July, so it's just a two-day shoot. But just playing around with live action a little bit. Also, my friend Woody Woodman, who is a story artist at Disney, not on Mulan. I think he was a maybe an assistant animator. He and I have been working uh, starting on a graphic novel from a screenplay that I wrote called uh, "The Cat and the Fiddle," and uh, it really doesn't have anything to do with a nursery rhyme, but uh, that's the name of the, the story. And uh, it's a it's a feature feature linked. Uh, script idea that i wrote uh, right after leaving disney in 2005 and uh and i've been sort of working on character artwork and design and stuff so we're actually illustrating it as like as a graphic novel it's it would be a very long one so it it will probably take us years to finish it but it's just sort of a side project a lot of fun to do and uh so that's some of the stuff i'm doing right now
0: Nice. nice well listeners go check out these things and uh, if you haven't seen Mulan in a while, go watch it again. I encourage it. It's on Netflix. It's barely an hour and a half. It's an easy watch. Go do it. It's great. Uh, so thanks, gentlemen, to you both for making the film and, of course, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure.
4: Thanks, Derek. And and to the
0: pleasure. to the mad chatters, you guys bring
4: honor to us all.
0: Well, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you listeners for tuning in and thanks again to Tony and Barry for joining us on this episode. You can always find us online if you want to send us some emails or interact with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Mad Chatters. We of course have a Facebook page and you can send those emails to comments at madchatters.net.
2: We'll see you next week. Take a little time to find the magic in every day. Bye bye now. I just realized I said SpongeBob the SquarePants, but you knew what I meant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's that SquarePants musical.